Father, we thank you that you have always been faithful. When we look through the course of history, whether it's in Scripture or in other parts of human history, Lord, we see your faithfulness. Even when we look in our own lives, we see your faithfulness as well. Even though we face challenging circumstances, you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. And now, Father, as we look into your word, into your words written in human form, I pray that you will help us to see with fresh eyes your faithfulness in writing and in preserving Scripture so that we can trust the Bibles that we hold in our hands here in the 21st century. May you give us open eyes, open ears, open hearts, open minds to understand your faithfulness through Scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever talked much with a non-Christian about the Bible, you've probably heard a question that goes something like this. How can you even trust the Bible in the first place? Isn't the Bible full of errors? Hasn't it been passed down through many generations, translated and retranslated and retranslated? And it's been changed so many times, these people claim, that we really can't know if this Bible that we hold in our hands now is accurate at all compared with the way it was originally written thousands of years ago. This is a very common line of thinking today. I really think it's uh, the standard belief that most people have in our culture about the Bible. And the funny thing is, many people who claim to believe that the Bible is full of errors and contradictions have never actually investigated it for themselves. They've heard other people say that it's full of errors and contradictions and it's been translated and retranslated and retranslated. And they've come to believe that themselves and they pass that same belief on to those around them, but they've never actually investigated it for themselves. Well, today I want to take some time to investigate whether or not the Bibles that we have access to today in the 21st century are accurate, whether they're reliable, whether they are trustworthy, or whether these people are, tr- are, are, are telling the truth when they, they say that the Bibles that we have today aren't really accurate compared with the originals. I think that in, in doing this investigation, we'll find that we're actually going against the grain of what a lot of people in our culture actually even want to do. I find that a lot of people really aren't even all that interested in examining the truth about Scripture. They would rather naively believe that the Bible is not to be trusted and should be put on a shelf somewhere as some nice historical book that has some nice things. But they don't really want to believe that it's accurate as the inspired word of God. Well, today I want to do that formal, or not formal investigation, but an in-depth investigation into whether or not we can trust the Bible. And I believe that as we look at the evidence, as we look at the facts of how the Bible has come to us, us in the 21st century, that we will see that it is extremely trustworthy and reliable. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you but would like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews or the chairs in front of you. Uh, we're going to look at Romans 10 today as a launching point for our, our look into the reliability of Scripture. Uh, we're currently in the third week of our text message series. Text message is all about what we believe about the Bible and why we believe it. The first week we looked at the topic of inspiration, about how God spoke through human authors to put God's words in human writing in a form that we can understand. Last week we looked at the topic of canonization. How do we get the 66 books that are in the Bible? What was the process that determined which books should be in the Bible and which books shouldn't? Then this week we're looking at the topic of translation. Of, of the topic of, is this Bible that we hold in our hands today accurate and reliable, or is it not? 
As I said, we're going to use Romans 10 as a launching point. And the book of Romans is all about the gospel. It's probably one of the most full, in-depth looks at the gospel in all of scripture. It starts out talking about how people are very sinful and separated from God. It goes on to talk about how Jesus is the only one who has ever paid the penalty for sin and for death. And how only through faith in Christ can we receive salvation. Can we have a right relationship with God? It's only through faith in Christ, not by what we do. But Romans goes on to talk about how salvation is not just to get out of hell free card, but it's an invitation to a brand new life. A life that includes a lot of spiritual growth, includes peace and joy. Even though we face suffering in this world, we can face it with incredible hope as we live and bask in the love of Christ on a day-to-day basis. And then we come to Romans 10, which continues to talk about the gospel. But I think we will see that Romans 10 also has relevance to this topic of translation and of the communication of Scripture. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I begin reading in the middle of verse 8 in Romans 10. Paul here is talking about the word of faith that we are proclaiming. He says the word of faith is this, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Jumping down to verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Now, I want to draw three observations from the passage. It's a very rich passage that we could say a lot about, but I want to draw three specific observations out that pertain to our topic for today. The first observation is that salvation comes through faith in Christ. And we see this very clearly, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's nothing else you have to do. There aren't any specific uh, religious or spiritual works that you have to do. It's only through faith in Christ that salvation comes. But we also see here very clearly that hearing about Christ precedes faith in Christ. See in verse 14, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard of? Later on, it says that faith comes from hearing the message. It's impossible to really believe in something you've never heard about or that you don't know anything about. And so people have to hear about Christ before they can really believe in him. Hearing about Christ even precedes salvation. But we also see here, as an inference of sorts, that Scripture is foundational to the gospel. Scripture is foundational to the gospel. I think it's more implicit than explicit in this passage. But Paul is talking a lot about how people have to hear about Christ before they can believe in Christ. He's talking specifically about proclaiming verbally the gospel. But we need to recognize the context in which he's communicating this. He's communicating it in writing. This is a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome that would later be included in in, in the context of Scripture. So he's communicating this in writing. And we see through the rest of Scripture that that Paul has a very high view of the importance of Scripture in terms of salvation and spiritual growth. We see, for instance, in in 2 Timothy 3, 
All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can grow. Paul holds very strongly to the authority uh, and, and the need for scripture. I think that scripture really forms the foundation of proclaiming the gospel to those around us. That's why oftentimes if we're sharing the gospel with someone, we pull out a Bible and point to this scripture and that scripture and that scripture to provide a foundation for the gospel message. I think that trying to understand the gospel without the foundation of Scripture is kind of like trying to understand how a person can stand upright without looking at the skeletal system. Because the skeleton provides the foundation for our bodies to be able to stand. Without the skeleton, we would just be a blob. In the same way, without the Scripture, the gospel would not have a lot of form and substance and foundation. I think the gospel without Scripture would degrade into something like the power of positive thinking. And so, so the gospel needs scripture in order to be fully understood and communicated. So scripture is foundational to the gospel. But here's an issue that we have. You have to be able to understand scripture or, or understand what is being communicated in order for it to become effective. Because remember, hearing about Christ precedes faith in Christ. I would like a volunteer this morning to read a passage of scripture. Who would be willing to read? Anyone? Gary, you want to read some scripture? Okay, we're going to project it up on the screen so you can just read what you see up there. Here's the, here's the first passage. You You got it all. I think you had about as much understanding of that scripture as I understood what came out of your mouth. How about we try, let's try another, um, a translation of the same passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All right, John 3.16. That first passage was also John 3.16, but it was in the original language in Greek. Greek was the language that the New Testament was written in. If you can read Greek, you don't need a translation. But I would say that the vast majority, if not all of us, cannot really read Greek or Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in. So translation is necessary. If someone handed you a Bible in Greek and you knew nothing of Christ, you wouldn't really be able to learn much about Christ unless you learned Greek. That shows the necessity of translating Scripture into a language that people can understand. Because Scripture is powerful and the Gospel is powerful, but if people can't understand it, it's not going to be effective in their lives. So that shows the, the requirement of translating Scripture into a language that people can understand. But that raises the question that we began with of, well, hasn't the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times and so many errors have entered the Scriptures that we really don't know if what we hold today is accurate or not? Well, again, that's the question that I want to dig into today. And as a roadmap for looking into this question, we're going to look at three different T's that are important and understanding uh, how we have our Bibles today. The first T that we're looking at today is transmission. Transmission talks about how the Bible was able to be passed down through the generations from century to century. Transmission starts with what we call original manuscripts. Original manuscripts uh, were when the Bible was written down for the first time. Manuscript is simply a fancy word for saying something that was written down by hand. We have to understand that every book, every piece of writing prior to the 1400s at the invention of the printing press was written by hand. And so the original manuscripts of Scripture refer to the first time that a human author 
wrote down the words of Scripture in, in, with their hand. Now, the majority of the books of Scripture were written down by the hand of the author of that book. But there are some parts of Scripture, such as Paul's letters, that were most likely written by a, a scribe, uh, where Paul would stand there and verbally dictate that, that, that letter, and the scribe would write it down. But oftentimes we see at the end of these letters that Paul writes the conclusion in his own handwriting. And we see that, for instance, at the end of Galatians. We see it in several other places as well. And, and so the original manuscripts are when the books of the Bible were first written down. And then after the original manuscripts were written down, they were distributed or sent usually to an individual or to a church uh, for reading and for use. And then started the process of copying the manuscripts. Now, copying the manuscripts is very important uh, in the process, and it's where a lot of questions are raised. So I want to spend a few minutes camping out on this topic of how are the manuscripts copied, because how they are copied makes a big difference in whether or not our Bibles that we hold today are reliable. I want to start out with the Old Testament. From about the 500 BC, at least that far back, up until the 1400s when the printing press was invented, there were groups of professional Jewish scribes whose only role in life, at least vocationally, was to copy the Hebrew scriptures faithfully and without error. So for my, for me, for my mind, that's hard to grasp. That for the better part of 2,000 years or more, there were people whose only job was to copy the Bible faithfully so that future generations could have uh, uh, an accurate copy of Scripture. Let me read to you some of the practices of these scribes to help us understand how painstaking this process was of transcribing Scripture faithfully. Here's a passage about uh, some of their practices. It says that the Masoretes, who were one of these groups of scribes, the Masoretes were well-disciplined and treated the text with the greatest imaginable reverence and devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal slips. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, and also the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible, and even made more detailed calculations than these. And they made up mnemonics by which the various totals that they counted might be readily remembered. You know, these scribes could tell if one letter in an entire book or even the entire Bible was missing. They had very specific rules in what they were doing, rules that govern the ink that they used in copying Scripture, rules that govern the amount of space between each word. Rules that prohibited them from copying something from memory. Even though these scribes knew scripture by heart, they could quote to you every word of scripture because their lives were engrossed in scripture. They were required to copy every word directly from another manuscript rather than trying to quote it from memory. And they were so painstaking that if one error was found in a manuscript that they were copying, that manuscript would be discarded and later destroyed so that the word of God would not be corrupted as it was passed down. So you see that the Old Testament was passed down with the utmost care to guard against errors. It was certainly not a game of children's telephone. Now when we look to the New Testament, things changed a little bit. There were still professional scribes who would transcribe the New Testament books in order to preserve them. 
But also there's a proliferation of people copying the New Testament on their own. See, these letters and these books would be distributed throughout the churches. These churches would want to share them with other churches. And so you'd have typically ordinary people who would be copying uh, these scriptures to send them to other churches to keep them for themselves. To the point where now we've found 5,000 Greek manuscripts from the first couple centuries after Christ. 5,000 fragments and also whole books that are the Bible. I mean, it's amazing how many copies of the Bible we have from early years. And it's amazing to see how this compares with other ancient books. And I think this helps give some foundation for why the Bible is so reliable. Let me show you a table uh, for why, um, why the New Testament can be so trusted. The New Testament, uh, we have over 5,000 copies of Greek uh, Bible of the New Testament from the first couple hundred years after Christ. If you look at the time gap between when the New Testament was written and when our earliest copies are, depending on which part of the New Testament you're talking about, the time gap is between 25 and 100 years between the time the, the books of the, of the New Testament were written and when our first copies that we have access to them are from. That's a remarkably short period of time for ancient history. You compare it to some other well-known pieces of ancient history, ancient writing. For instance, for instance Homer's Iliad, uh, written a few hundred years before the time of Christ, uh, that's the next uh, most uh, or best attested uh, ancient piece of writing other than the Bible. But the time gap between when that was written and our earliest copy is 400 years. And there were only 643 copies of that that have been found. That's really a lot, except when you compare it to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we have over 5,000 copies. If you look at Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, which uh, were very near to the time of Christ. There's a thousand years between when Caesar wrote that history and when we, our earliest copy is from. And we only have ten copies of that. If you look at Plato's writing, the Greek philosopher, 1,200 years between the time that he wrote down his philosophies and when our earliest copy is. And we've only found seven original copies, or seven copies of what he wrote. And so you see that when you compare the Bible with other ancient sources of writing, these other things really um, pale in comparison, and it shows that we have so much evidence from which to draw to understand whether or not the Bible is reliable. You even compare it with more recent uh, writings. Compare it with Shakespeare's plays. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays through his lifetime uh, in, I think, the 1400s, 1500s. And of those 37 plays, we don't have a single play that we know everything that he wrote. Every single play that Shakespeare wrote just a few hundred years ago has gaps. We don't know what was in there. Scholars, Shakespearean scholars, have filled in the gaps with their best guess of what was in there. But we don't know for sure because we don't have enough manuscript evidence. But when you look at the Bible and how it's transmitted down through the centuries, we have a tremendous amount of manuscript evidence from which to draw to understand are our Bibles reliable or not. And it comes back from a very early time after the Bible was originally written. And we also have verification that the transmission of the Bible has been effective. Back in 1947, there was a shepherd boy in Israel. He was chasing a goat that had wandered away from the flock. And he was up in some hill country around uh, the Dead Sea. 
He, just like a, a normal teenage boy, he was just playing around while he was looking for this goat. He had a rock in his hand. He threw the rock into a hole in the cliff next to him. And when that rock went into that hole in the cliff, as the story goes, he heard shattering pottery. He, he was kind of interested in what's going on in there. So he went in, and as he went in there, he saw jar upon jar that was sealed. He opened up these, one of these jars and saw in there scrolls. These scrolls dated back from about 100 B.C., 100 years before the time of Christ. And over the next few years, the 1940s, early 1950s, archaeologists uh, discovered many, many other caves with similar scrolls that were back from before the time of Christ. These are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason that these are significant, they're really a biblical scholar's dream. Because what they did was verify that the way the Bible has been passed down through the years is extremely accurate. You see, up to that time, the earliest copy of the Old Testament we had was from about 1000 A.D. And finding uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls from about 100 B.C., and the entire Old Testament was in there many times over, it showed us that the Bible has not changed from 100 B.C. to 1000 A.D. The span of 1,000 years, there were no significant changes in what took place. The changes that were there were spelling errors shows how amazing it was that the Bible has not changed through all the years. So the stories about the game of telephone and the Bible having all these errors that entered through the years is just plain wrong. So the first T is transmission. The Bible is faithfully transmitted down through the generations. The second T that we're looking at is textual criticism. It's this topic of how scholars can determine what the original wording was of the Bible. Because the reality is we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. We don't have the letters that Paul wrote with his own hand. We don't have the, letter, or the, the books that Moses or Isaiah wrote. The original manuscripts have either disintegrated or they were destroyed, perhaps in some sort of persecution. So on one hand, that seems like a really big deal. Because when we talk about the Bible being without error, we talk about it being without error in the original writings. We don't have the original writings anymore. So on one hand, it seems like a big deal. On the other hand, it's not really a big deal at all because we have so much manuscript evidence from so close to when the Bible was originally written. Now, you've probably heard people say there are errors in the Bible. And when you compare all those manuscripts, remember, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts from the first couple hundred years after Christ. When you compare those 5,000, this is a number that sounds scary at first, but in reality it's not. If you compare those 5,000 manuscripts... There are about 10,000 places where those 5,000 manuscripts differ from one another in one way or another. So people say, well, there are 10,000 errors in the New Testament by itself. How can that be faithful and reliable at all? I want to explain for a minute how those errors got in there. And as we will see those errors, many of, what, many of them really don't matter at all. There are, there are some changes to Scripture that were unintentional. Sometimes misspelling of a word. Sometimes people would uh, accidentally skip a word in what they were writing or uh, repeat a word. Sometimes uh, people who were transcribing uh, Scripture divided words in the wrong places because in ancient manuscripts, uh, they were written in all capital letters, nonstop, with no spaces between the words. So, so the scribes had to determine where do we divide the words and sometimes they would divide them in the wrong places. Sometimes you'd have a scribe who'd write personal notes out in the margin of what he was writing. Just notes perhaps to himself, kind of like we do in our Bibles. 
But what would happen is that you have the next scribe who's copying that, that manuscript, and they see the notes on the margins, and they think, oh, that should be in there, so they include that in their manuscript that they're writing. Sometimes, because the scribes are so familiar with Scripture, they have a slip of the mind, and they include something that's from a different part of Scripture that shouldn't be in this part. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a part that talks about the fruit of the light. We have a lot of manuscripts that use the phrase, rather than the fruit of the light, they use fruit of the Spirit. Because that's a very familiar phrase from Galatians chapter 5. But we know they included that in there just because it was probably on their mind because they knew it from Galatians 5. But we know uh, from the context and from comparing it with other manuscripts that it should be fruit of the light, not fruit of the Spirit. So there are a number of unintentional changes that occurred. There are also a number of intentional changes that occurred to manuscripts through the years. Some of the changes were in spelling. If someone knows a misspelled word, well, they'd correct it. But that's one of those things that's counted in the differences between manuscripts. Sometimes people would change the spelling of people's names. You know that through the years, through the centuries, the spelling of names changes. And so people would update the spelling of the name to be in accordance with contemporary spellings. Sometimes people would try to harmonize uh, Scripture with a parallel passage. For instance, you have the Lord's Prayer in both Matthew and Luke. And so since you have two versions of the Lord's Prayer, they're worded slightly differently. They contain slightly different things. Sometimes the scribes would try to make them appear to be identical. Well, those are differences. Also, they would try to smooth out some grammar. Sometimes they see grammar, they're like, oh, I think I can improve this a little bit. So they try to change that. Sometimes they try to clarify difficult concepts, things that are hard to understand, by just adding a phrase to, to explain it. Well, again, that's a change in what was originally there. And there were definitely some times when people uh, would put in their own uh, theological views uh, or even change things to try to suit what their views are rather than what was originally in Scripture. That definitely happened at times. There's a, there's a joke um, that, that goes something like, you know, the problem isn't that, that we only have 99% of Scripture and we have to figure out uh, what's missing. The problem is that we have 101% of Scripture because people have added so much to it and we have to figure out what doesn't belong there. Because the tendency of people is to add to Scripture rather than taking stuff away. But thankfully, we have this concept called textual criticism, where scholars are able to look at passages, look at, uh, compare all the manuscripts, and determine what was the original reading. And I want to share with you a few of the principles that scholars use as they look at all these manuscripts to determine what is the original reading in the original manuscripts. Here are four of the main principles that are used. The first principle is that manuscripts must be weighed, not counted. Now, that may seem kind of strange. What does that mean? What this means is that not all ancient manuscripts are equal. Some are more reliable than others. One of the things that causes a manuscript typically to be, uh, have more weight and more reliability is when it's older. If it's closer to the original source, it's typically, typically given a little bit more weight. Another thing is that there are different families of manuscripts. They come from different geographical regions. And as you can imagine, from the different regions, it looks like a family tree that one's copied from another, from another, from another. And there are certain families from certain geographical regions of manuscripts that are more reliable than others. So those get a little bit more weight. So scholars don't just take a vote of the manuscripts and say, well, a whole bunch, a thousand of these manuscripts say this, and only 200 manuscripts say this, so we're going to go with a thousand. They, also, they don't just count which one wins a popular vote, but they count which one has more weight, which one has more inherent reliability. So they, they give more weight to the manuscripts that are shown to be more reliable. 
Also, they have a principle that the harder reading is generally preferred. See, the tendency of people make intentional changes to try to smooth things out, to try to explain things, is they want to make it a little bit easier to understand. So if something's a little bit more distinct or, or a little bit harder to understand on the surface level reading, they'll typically favor the one that's a little bit harder because of the natural tendency of the scribes. Also, the shorter reading is oftentimes preferred. Because as we already said, the natural tendency was to add something to Scripture, add a phrase of explanation. Maybe add the word Christ to the name Jesus. So the shorter reading is oftentimes preferred. And finally, uh, this is quite important as well, it's important to determine the reading that is most appropriate in the context. Whether it's in the context of the passage of that book. Okay, what fits? Well, in Ephesians 5 that I was sharing earlier, talking about... um, um, being fruit of the light, that fits the context. Fruit of the Spirit doesn't fit it quite as well. They also look, in terms of the context, they look at the author's vocabulary, vocabulary look at the author's styles of writing, and that can oftentimes give clues of what's the most accurate reading. So when we boil it all down, scholars apply these rules of textual criticism to all these manuscripts. What it comes down to is that we can have extreme confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Because the vast majority of these variations and changes are not consequential at all. Scholars really only have about one half of one percent of the New Testament that they have any question of what was in the original manuscript. What that means is if if your New Testament is about 200 pages long, which is average in our Bibles, that means that about one page... Out of those 200, if you put all the parts that that scholars are unsure about, if you put all those parts in in one place, that would only be about one page out of the 200-page New Testament that there is any question at all of what was in the original. And even those parts that are in question, they're typically just little phrases or one word here or there. That makes no difference on doctrines of Christianity because of the types of, of questions they are and because of the rest of Scripture that we have. So we can have a lot of confidence in our scriptures that they are reliable to the original source. Now, in English, the most popular version down through history has been the King James Version. And it's interesting when you look at the history of the King James Version to see uh, some of the errors that have entered into the printing of the King James Version. I want to share this partly because it's kind of funny, but also partly because it illustrates how a lot of the errors that occur in scriptures as they're being copied, are very easy to identify. Here are a few of them. One from 1631 is called the Wicked Bible because it leaves out the word not from the seventh commandment and says, thou shalt commit adultery. You can probably pretty easily figure out, okay, that should not be there. 1653, there was a version called the Unrighteous Bible where in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it said the unrighteous shall inherit the earth. When instead, it should say, the righteous shall inherit the earth. In 1702, there was the scribe's Bible, where in Psalm 119, it should say, princes have persecuted me. Instead, it says, printers have persecuted me. And the joke is that um, that may be true in that edition of the Bible, because there were so many errors in the way that it was printed, that it does seem like printers had it out for that version of the Bible. And then in 1717, you had the vinegar Bible. Because in Luke 20, you should have the parable of the vineyard. Instead, it was called the parable of the vinegar. Now, this, again, this is an example. It's an error, but it shows how easy it is to recognize the errors. 
Because you compare it with uh, what you already know about Scripture, compare it with other versions, you know there's not a parable of the vinegar. Jesus did not tell that parable. He told the parable of the vineyard. Now finally, 1795, you have the murderer's Bible. In Mark 7.27, it should say, let the children first be filled. Instead, that Bible says, let the children first be killed. So you read these things, and you say, you know what? That's a mistake. That's an error. But I think this should give us even more confidence when we think about those parts where the Greek manuscripts change in some way or another. Because most of the changes, most of the errors, were very similar to this. There are simple mistakes they are very easily identifiable. And so when we look at the Greek manuscripts, we can have extreme confidence that what we have today is the exact same as what they had then. I mean, there's that 0.5% that we're a little bit uncertain about, but that, in the big scheme of things, makes no difference in whether or not we trust our versions of Scripture that we can hold in our hands. So that's textual criticism. We talked about transmission. Let's briefly talk about the final part, translation which is about how we get our Bibles in a language that we can understand, since most of us cannot read Greek or Hebrew. Now, we need to understand that translating the Bible is not like a game of telephone. What we do is go back to the oldest sources that we have, use the methods of textual criticism, and determine what's the best reading in the original Greek or Hebrew, and then translate directly from that. It's not a game of telephone. But we still have the question of why do different translations translate the Bible differently? Why do we have so many different translations? Well, there are a couple of answers on why we have different translations that translate things differently. First of all, translators at times translate from a different text of Scripture. The main difference is that the King James Version and the New King James Version translate from one Greek manuscript. They believe that to be the most accurate Greek manuscript, so they translate from that one manuscript. Every other English version translates from a compilation of what are seen to be the best readings of Greek and Hebrew. Remember those principles of textual criticism? They take those, apply them to the 5,000 manuscripts, and come up with what they see to be the best reading from the original Greek and Hebrew. So when you compare, say, the King James to the New American Standard, that's why you may see some differences, because they're coming from different manuscripts. So sometimes they translate from a different text. The other main reason, which is the bigger reason, is that they are translating the text differently. There are different theories and principles of how people translate Scripture. Sometimes uh, some translations are more of a literal word-for-word translation where they want it to be as exact to the original language as possible in terms of words used in word order and sentence structure. Other translations follow a principle known as dynamic equivalence where they aren't as, as concerned about keeping the exact word order, they're more of a thought-for-thought for or phrase-for-phrase translation. They want to get the, the, the main idea, but communicate it in a way that's a little bit easier to understand in today's world. Then you have a third category of translations, which are better called paraphrases, um, because you know they're based on the original language, but they're such a loose, free translation, they're more of a paraphrase than a translation. But what we need to understand is that all translations make some changes to the original text. If you were to, to take um, Greek or Hebrew and write out the English words in the exact same word order as the Greek or Hebrew, it would make little or no sense to us. It would be just a jumble of words because the grammar and syntax changes in different languages. So there have to be interpretive decisions that are made. We have to understand, too, that idioms change down through the centuries. 
For instance, we don't talk much today about girding up the loins of our mind, do we? And when was the last time you told someone, gird up your loins, we're going to head out? You don't hear that very much, do you? That's one of the decisions that translators have to make. Do we keep those original word pictures that made sense in that original culture, or do we update it? That's one of the examples of changes in in our differences between translations. So you see in the early chapters of Genesis that Adam knew Eve. Now, if you know anything about what's being talked about there, it's not simply they knew her, but they knew her very, very intimately, sexually. And so translators have to um, determine, do we translate it very literally and say Adam knew Eve, or do we update it in a, in a way that modern readers can understand? Now, I want to show you just a brief, uh, a brief spectrum of Bible translations to help us see where some of the more popular translations are in terms of relationship with other uh, translations. Again, um, on our website, you can listen to these messages online. We also have documents that you can download for each of these text message, seri- text message messages. Uh, they, they explain this stuff. And this spectrum, even a fuller version of the spectrum, is in that document if you want to look at that. But that shows how there's a spectrum of Bible translations that goes from word to word, word, uh, for word literal through dynamic equivalence over to being paraphrased. Now, I sometimes get the question of, well, what's the best translation? Honestly, I don't think there's one best translation. I think that's really the wrong question to ask. The better question is, what translation is is right for me right now? I'll just give you some of my personal recommendations. These are more personal recommendations or what I do. Um, I personally typically use the New International Version, partly because it's so common. Um, It's easy to use the New International Version because a lot of other people use it, uh, so it's not as confusing. But also I find it to be very accurate and very readable. Another translation I really, really like is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, When I was translating from Greek and Hebrew in seminary, if I translated it well, it would look most like the ESV. So I like the ESV a lot as well. Uh, But a lot of those other translations you see up there are great as well. If someone's just starting out, they've never read the Bible before, and they want something that's easy to understand, I recommend sometimes the New Living Translation. still an accurate translation, but it's a little bit more uh, contemporary in terms of its language. It's, it's not the best if you want to do in-depth study, but it's still helpful. So, so the important question to ask is, what's the right translation for me right now? If you're going to do an in-depth study on the book of, of, of the Bible, I recommend using several translations from different parts of that spectrum to get more literalness, and then maybe more of the dynamic equivalence to understand what was originally there. Now, in closing today, I want to share three application points for us. First of all, trust the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy, so we need to trust it completely. Second, live it out. God thought it was important to write his words down in human form so we could understand it. Thousands upon thousands of people get their blood, sweat, and tears through the years to protect the Bible so that it could be passed down to us. So it ought to be important to us to know it and to live it out in our lives. And thirdly, praise God because of his faithfulness. I see God's hand of faithfulness and providence all through the passing on of Scripture down through the generations, how he preserved for us a faithful edition of his word for us to understand and know and live out in our lives. So let's praise him for his faithfulness. We're going to sing a song about faithfulness to him in just a moment after I pray. Father, we thank you for, for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're a faithful God who's given us your word and preserved it through the centuries so that today 
We don't have some garbled mess in our hands that we hope is right, but that we can have confidence that the Bible we hold in our hands is faithful to what you originally wrote thousands of years ago. Pray that you'll help us to praise you uh, for your scripture and to live it out and to trust it wholeheartedly in Jesus' name. Amen.